This podcast is sponsored by Legacy Seeds. Legacy Seeds helps build the legacy of your farm by offering custom, high-performing food and feed solutions with the optimal combination of yield and quality. Their Wisconsin-based breeding and development team consistently produces award-winning seed. Visit LegacySeeds.com to download their seed guide and learn more about their customized forage solutions for your farm. From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting-edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome back to The Dairy Show, everyone. I am your host, Katie Schmidt. And joining us this week for our episode is Ron Brooks. He is a co-owner and operator of Brooks Farms in Wapaka, Wisconsin. So welcome to the podcast, Ron. Thank you, Katie. All right. Well, the first thing I like to have guests do is to introduce themselves a little bit. So listeners get to know you as well as I get to know you a little bit too. So can you share what your connection is to agriculture and a little bit about yourself? Well, sure, Katie. Uh, my name is Ron Brooks. I'm uh, 62 years old. I'm a 1982 graduate of UW-Madison. I intended to be a veterinarian, but I came out of there with a dairy science production and technology degree. And I also minored in uh, geology and physics. I'm kind of a geek. Uh, I, I've got a couple daughters that are kind of uh, geeks like I am as well. I am the current steward of Brooks Dairy Farms or Brooks Farms. We have three LLCs, Brooks, well, I think maybe even four now. We have Brooks Farms uh, Dairy, Brooks Farms Homestead, which owns all the land, Brooks Farms Direct, uh, which uh, controls black and white, our uh, NIPS division. And I think I'm missing one. Well, Maybe not. Maybe that. Maybe we have three. But I have. Uh, I'm also president of Northern Light Aviation. I'm a pilot, uh, former flight instructor. I no longer am a flight instructor, but still do a lot of flying. I do it mostly for the farm. Do a lot of surveillance work. Do a lot of crop scouting. I uh, like I said. I'm the current steward of Brooks Farms. I've we've been here since 1855. My great great grandfather homesteaded this farm uh, back then under President Polk. Wow, that is a long history. I like how you call yourself a steward of the farm and not just like the owner or the operator. I really like that steward term. Uh, so who's involved today with you in those LLCs? Well, easier question would be who's not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I have four daughters. The number three, Zoe, who was our Alice in Dairyland. Uh, everybody knows Zoe, uh, is my chief operations officer. She pretty much, we joke on the farm that she handles everything with a heartbeat. So cows, calves, employees, uh, that's Zoe's strong point. If Zoe has a weakness, it's on the agronomy and uh, on, the, on the machine side of things. So we both love cows. And sometimes uh, as a partner, you have to give up things that you love for the sake of the business. And I've handed my cow operations pretty much hundred percent over to Zoe. So I am, uh, I'm stuck doing this stuff. That's not my passion. Uh, the agronomy and, um, well, the agronomy, I guess is, but the, the tractor side, the machine side, the harvesting, the planting, uh, I'd much rather be with the cows, but, uh, Zoe, uh, Zoe's just not there yet. Uh, on that side, uh, don't know if she ever will be. It's just not her passion, but she loves. 
I talked with John Rudinger a couple episodes ago because he's our dairy producer of the year this year for Expo. And we had talked a lot about succession planning because his um, daughter is also joining the farm and what that process is looking like. And I'm wondering, as you're doing this with Zoe, you know, what is what are you learning from that process? What kind of advice could you share with others going through um, these beginning stages of that transition process? Start early. If there's one piece of advice I can give uh, young farmers, don't wait until you're 50. Don't wait until you're 60 or even older to start this process. Uh, it started for my children when they were old enough to work on the farm. And they were taught value. They were taught stewardship. They were taught sustainability. And have a plan. But remember that that plan has to be flexible. Uh, things change. People's hearts, desires, passions change. Quite honestly, I didn't think that any of my daughters, they were never pushed toward it. And I didn't think any of them would ever come back and be dairy farmers. They had plenty of other options. Obviously, Zoe being Alice, um, you know, she could have gone anywhere she wanted in media or, you know, who knows where. But um, yeah, we had a heart to heart talk and she truly wanted to be in dairy and we had outdated facilities. So we jumped in with both feet and spent a whole lot of money. and and built a new state-of-the-art dairy. But I think, I think the biggest thing is teaching value. And even my older children, my other children that are not active members of the farm, and that, that's who's, I mean, when you're in this family, you're an active member of the farm because when bunkers need to be covered, everybody pitches in. So they, they kind of joke, what do you mean inactive? I'm not an active member of the farm. But they understand value. And a great example of that is uh, I went through an unexpected divorce. Uh, I was married to the, the girl's mother for, for 30 years. And like every you know, stupid male, I never saw it coming. And uh, the divorce hit us, all of us, uh, the daughters and me, kind of by surprise. And those four girls saved the farm. Quite honestly, they, it, was a, it was a long drought out divorce. And, you know, there are a lot of assets with the farm involved. The girls stepped up to the plate. Uh, kind of, I think they kind of got sick of the bickering, actually, and worked closely with George Tuig and said, uh, look, uh, just give us the farm and there's nothing to fight about. And they were, and they were right. And George set it up. Uh, George is an excellent, uh, I'd highly recommend him, Tuig Law. Uh, he worked with all of us <clears throat> and set it up so that Homestead LLC which is my four daughters, owned all the land. And that was remarkable in and of itself. Uh, my wife gave them her half of the land base. Uh, I gave them my half of the land base. And voila, our succession planning was in, in full speed. Uh, not quite the way we planned it, but you know, it worked. The more remarkable part was when we went to refinance uh, with Bank First in about, two, about a year ago, uh, Bank First demanded that um, everyone on the note was an unlimited guarantor. That meant my older daughter, who was a doctor, uh, had to put all of her assets on the line, her, her home, her practice, her car, her boat. Uh, my second daughter, who is also uh, not a farmer, uh, meant she had to put her practice. She's a, she's a marriage and family counselor, therapist. She had to put her practice, her home, uh, everything she owned on the line. 
And my youngest daughter, the same thing. She had just gotten out of college, bought a new property. She has a, a wedding venue and that would have been at risk. And I said, you know, we can't do that. And we had a, we have also, we all have monthly meetings. And I said, you know, I brought it up at the meeting. I said, what are we going to do? And I don't know if it's ever happened in a business. I know I've never seen it happen in the dairy sector. The non-farming siblings, the three siblings, without hesitation, signed their name on a piece of paper and signed over all of their assets to Zoe and I. That never happened. <laughs> That's, that is, I would, I would say, not only are they phenomenal people, but you know, that understanding um, that money isn't everything started at an early age. And they understand the value of keeping this legacy moving forward and what it meant to their sister, you know, the, the, she, they would have bankrupted her to try to buy them out. But they also understand that they're placeholders. You know, I, they all have children. Well, not all of them yet, but um, my oldest has four children. My second daughter has two. And they understand that their place is being a placeholder. That someday if their children decide that they want to step in and farm, they have access and just like just like they you know we have a requirement that you have to go to college first after college you have to work somewhere else for at least a year and then you apply just like any other applicant and you have to bring something to the table just because you have a bloodline to this farm doesn't mean you're automatically in you can't go to a liberal arts college and get a political science degree and come back here and expect you know expect to contribute so you have to bring something back. And that's why we require that you go somewhere else first, because if you don't, uh, you're going, even after college, you're just going to come back here and do things the way grandpa did or the way dad did. And I think it's very important. I was allowed to, and I make every effort to allow my daughters to skin their knees. Um, sometimes a senior partner has to just step back and redraw that line in the sand and go, you know, I was given a chance to make mistakes. I don't think this is correct. I don't think this is good for the business. But if, you, if I don't let them try, uh, I handcuff them. And, and I think black and white is a great example. They're putting their fingerprint on this place. I was allowed to put my fingerprints all over it. Uh, now it's their turn. Yeah. Okay. So black and white, that's a perfect transition. What is black and white? Well, I think it's a great, I, I, I think it's, you know, they rebranded. It, it was uh, Brooks Farms Beef and Cheese, and then they rebranded to Black and White. And it, it's a great model. Uh, black and White represents the Holstein cow. And you can do so much with that brand because, you know, it's as simple as Black and White. Uh, know where your food comes from. It's, it's, it's Black and White. So I think it's a really, a really good uh, rebranding, I think it's going to take them a long way. It kind of points exactly the direction they want to go as far as sustainability and reaching out to the customer, letting them know where their food comes from. So black and white is our niche division. It, it handles the beef. We're direct marketing beef. And now we're making our own cheese. Well, that's a misnomer. Dave Metzig, Union Star Dairy is making our cheese. But we drew a 50-mile circle around the farm and sampled everybody's cheddar because we wanted to make a white cheddar. And hands down, we all said, this is the best one. And Dave now makes our white cheddar for us. 
I also love that your guys' barns are black and white. So you yeah. have this like full picture image of black and white is just, it's phenomenal. I, I saw it come across and the logo is great and all of it just went, wow. Yeah. Like this is a perfect brand. Well, you understand Sydney works with, uh, works for filament egg marketing. So that's a great example of why we require people to go somewhere else and work for a year first or more. Her work with filament has broadened her horizons so far. We don't, I don't even attempt to market, to be honest. You know, anything I say, it's like, dad, you know, dad, I've got this. <laughs> She's so good. And um, I, you know, I think if she does come back to the farm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if she's, continues to work with filament or a, a similar company even while she's here because I think truly now with remote uh, that could that could work and I think it adds value not only to us uh, not only to Brooks farms not only to black and white but I think it makes her more valuable to filament as well because she has both feet on the ground uh, boots in the alleyway and she knows what's going on. She knows why this alley scraper is better than the other one. Or she knows, you know, why this procedure or protocol works or because she's there and she's doing it. Yeah, that working knowledge is so impactful and so useful when you're working in marketing. And, and I can attest to that, too, going home and farming when I can and doing what I do for Expo. It's, it's a huge asset. Farm kids in general do have a leg up. I think any employer will tell you when they see farm background on a resume, you're in. And just because you understand hard work and value and don't quit till it's done. And, you know, we hear that all the time. Yeah, I think it goes back to those values you were talking about, right? Like those are just things that are instilled in, in farm kids. Your main responsibilities, and Zoe has the cows now, uh, agronomy and machinery. So let's talk a little bit about what it is you're doing on that front with the business. Walk us through or explain to us what the environment looks like that you're working in. So soil types, weather, um, those things that are outside of your control. Well, weather, um, you know, and any, that's the main topic of discussion at any uh, breakfast place with farmers. We seem to be getting uh, more rain than anybody else. Uh, not complaining, we're a lighter soil type. We're typically a Hortonville soil. We're pretty careful about farms that we buy. So our preferred soil type up here is Hortonville, uh, Sandy Loam. It's a very forgiving soil. It's very easy to work with. And it's a good place to put a dairy. It, what it consists of is about 18 inches of topsoil and then up to 90 feet of clay before we hit bedrock. So what that allows us to do is it's a great soil to grow alfalfa in. And I love alfalfa. If I could grow nothing but alfalfa, that's what I would do. I, and I've long said, if we lose cows in Wisconsin, it will be the worst thing that ever happened to our water quality because cows get a bad rap. You know, sometimes people say that runoff from dairy farms is polluting our lakes. Uh, in small instances, that might be true. But when you look at what do we need, if we have cows, we have alfalfa. If we don't have cows, we have no reason to grow alfalfa. And when, we, when we're growing alfalfa, that's five years of virtually no erosion. That's five years of vir virtually no chemical inputs. Uh, that's five years of mining nutrients that got down below the, the, the range of soybeans and corn 
and bringing that phosphorus and bringing that potassium back up to the surface to give us another chance to bring it through the cow. That doesn't happen if we're row cropping. And our water quality in Wisconsin, ironically, if we lose cows in Wisconsin, we lose, we, we lose water qualities. It's plain and simple because we lose alfalfa. Back to the land. Oh, man, you know, that, that's just, uh, it, we're no-till. So I, have a, I do have a big gripe that I would like to probably get out in the air. And that's the whole new carbon crediting. Uh, we've had a solar array for years. I think our solar array is 15 years old. I have tons and tons of carbon credits built up on those solar panels that I was promised when I put them in. I've never, I've never marketed any of them. And then several new companies, Indigo Ag um, to be, is one of them. They're marketing carbon credits. I called, they called me, and I wanted to participate. And they said, well, sure, you know, sounds like a great idea. Tell us your crop rotation and what practices would you like to adopt? And they listed them off, no-till, strip-till, cover crops. I said, no, we've been doing that for 20 years. And because of that, I don't qualify. I can't play the carbon credit game and I can't get carbon credits because I've been doing it for 20 years. Now, if I would quit and go back to tillage for four or five years, that I would qualify. That is the silliest concept I've ever seen. And my neighbor who tills the soil into submission qualifies for carbon credits because all he's got to do is adopt a simple practice like no-till or, or strip-till, and voila, he gets carbon credits. That is, that is completely backwards in my mind. <laughs> I've heard that from other people too, so you're not the first one to tell me that this is, this is how this works. Uh, what else on the, on the agronomy front, man, we, we could be here for days. You know, we're constantly trying new things, cover crop mixes. The challenge right now is we're trying to get more diversity in our cover crops. It, it, we're at 44 degrees north latitude, so it gets tough. Uh, if you don't get brassicas in by the middle of August, it's a waste of time and it's a waste of money. And I really want brassicas. I really want clovers. So it looks like we're going to have to get them in earlier. We've tried flying them on. That doesn't work. We just lose too much seed in the whirl of the corn plant. I'm actually working with Judd Hodgins right now with Legacy Seeds, and we can't talk a real lot about it because it's somewhat confidential, but it's pretty cool. And we're looking at a process where we can seed our cover crops at the same time we plant corn and actually get past the herbicides. We can. It's a, it's a unique concept. We hope we can make it work, but uh, it would allow us to plant all at once and have the cover crops come in sequentially. Yeah, and decrease your amount of passes over a field. Like, that would be huge. Yeah, I'm, about, you know, I'm all about compaction. We still we don't allow semis in our field, uh, whether it's corn for grain or forage harvesting. We, pull, we still pull forage, forage boxes with the chopper. And it drives everybody crazy because we move a little bit slower. You know, it takes us two days to get haylage off instead of one. But I'm a pilot and I can, you know, any day you can fly up and see neighbors who have used semis in their fields and see the compaction that happens. And it just, that never goes away. And I, I just will not allow compaction. So it, it's a constant battle. And I truly think that equipment is going to start going the other way. We have these huge tractors, we have huge grain carts, and I think with autonomy coming in, 
I think we're going to see a shift into smaller, instead of one 24-row planter, we might see three eight-row planters being pulled by 100-horse tractors that are fully autonomous. And what that does is when my 24-row planter goes down, all planting stops. It could be a simple bearing or a chain. Uh, and now you know what it's like getting parts. So the beauty of having three eight-row planters is, guess what? If one goes down, I'm still planting 16 rows of corn autonomously. And I think we're going to see a shift uh, with concern to compaction, with autonomous tractors and equipment coming in. I think equipment's going to go the other way. I think it's going to start getting a little smaller and more. Just think how much cheaper you can make a tractor if you don't have to put a cab on it, if you don't have to air condition it, if you don't have to put a stereo in it. Um, you know, that, that, that opens the door to maybe I can put three smaller track autonomous tractors out there. Yeah, all the human comforts or necessities even. You're in like central Wisconsin. Is that how you would define where Wapaka is? Yeah, pretty much smack in the middle of the state, 60 miles west of Green Bay. Yeah, uh, th that's pretty much where I'd put us. Okay. A lot of people listening might consider that north. Um, and, you know, you've got a short growing season. You have cool temperatures in the spring. You've got an early fall at times. One of the things that is an old school way of thinking, but with cover crops is soil temperatures in the spring, getting things warm enough to get planting and the challenges that are there with cover crops. So what are you seeing in the actual management of that that's impacting good or bad with your agronomy practices? Myth busting. Um, Great. You know, Love it. <laughs> <laughs> the, myth, the myth that you've got to get in there and air it out or dry it out or warm it up, uh, just not true. Uh, we see, and we've done side-by-sides. Uh, Judd works pretty closely with me. Judd Hodgins, one of my agronomists. We do side-by-side -side soil, soil temperatures. Actually, ironically, my cover crop soil temperatures are typically warmer, not drier, but warmer than my anything that's tilled. Sometimes we do have to do tillage. If there, you know, this spring was a great example. We had to make some room in the manure pit. So we had to put on, you know, about a million gallons of manure onto a field and obviously had to do some tillage. It's my least favorite. I just dread when I have to plant into tilled fields. <laughs> but uh, a lot of myths. What you have to realize is that, and I've said it a million times, um, photosynthesis should be listed as the first wonder of the world. It took me 62 years, but I have discovered the meaning of life, and it's simply photosynthesis. If you look at what we need to survive, you know, the human body runs on glucose and oxygen, right? Uh, look at the formula for photosynthesis, six CO2s, six water molecules, and what I call fairy dust or sunshine, which takes a lot of energy to drive this formula. And look what comes out the other side. You get C6H12O6 glucose and six oxygen molecules. Is there any better definition of the meaning of life than photosynthesis? I mean, it's everything we need to survive. Now, if you do fall tillage and your field looks like a brown desert, uh, the sun can beat on that bare dirt all at once and nothing happens. But if you have a growing root out there, if you have green living tissue out there, I don't care what it is, even if it's weeds, 
you're absorbing sunshine and you're putting glucose, you're putting energy into that bi soil biosphere. And when it comes time to plant in the spring, I've got a three month head start. I've already been putting energy in that soil since February, those warm days when the sun came out and the snow melted, I'm gaining solar energy. And without that big thing up in the sky, you know, when that goes out, we've got about eight minutes to figure out what to do because no matter where our energy comes from on this planet, uh, if it's solar, wind, petrochemicals, that all came from sunshine. You know, that's just stored sunshine. So it, it, the beauty of cover cropping is that uh, I'm sticking energy, even at 44 degrees north latitude, nine months, sometimes 10 months out of the year, I'm sticking glucose, I'm sticking energy, I'm feeding mitochondria, I'm, I'm feeding that soil nine to 10 months out of the year. So one of the words that was tossed around when I was lining this interview up with you, Ron, is this efficiency that you're seeing with your uh, crops and with your alfalfa in particular, I believe. And I was told, and you're going to have to tell me if this is correct or not and how it happened, but that you're feeding four times the number of cows on the same number of acres. Is that true? It's a little bit of a misnomer because when we were feeding you know, 250 cows, we were also selling grain. So we have a grain facility as well uh, that's been sitting dormant now for two years because we expanded the dairy. It's actually, you know, I wouldn't mind getting, we need more land. Uh, I would like to be able to uh, still be a little bit diversified and, and have the grain division up and running. But um, it's actually a more sustainable model because what you have to really, you know, agriculture is a net sum enterprise. When commodities leave this farm, they have to be replaced. So when you sell something as nutrient dense as milk, that takes a lot of that takes a lot out of the farm. Fortunately, what we're left with is manure. And that doesn't happen with row cropping when you don't have animals uh, in the picture. When you're strictly row cropping and buying synthetic fertilizers, there's a key part of that, that whole circle of life missing. You just don't have that living biosphere getting that manure and all and all that. You know, I don't think we truly understand everything that manure encompasses. But we all know that uh, there's something magical about it. When we get it on the soil in the right way at the right time, there's no there's no commercial fertilizer that comes close. So you've talked about flying at the way beginning of all of this and that you used to be a flight instructor, but now you're using it more for management and crop scouting. How do you think flying and seeing the farm from the point of view that you can from an airplane impacts what you're doing in terms of management on the farm? Well, that's a great question, Katie, because, you know, I think it really opened my eyes. I would like to, and I do, but I would like to get a lot of young farmers, uh, college students, uh, get them up in the airplane after a big rain event. You know, if we have a 10-year rain event or a 100-year rain event, get them up in the airplane and just let them see the silt fans. Uh, see, you know, follow, and I always say follow the water. So we wrote, actually wrote a little book. And we're on like our third printing here. Uh, it's called A Creek Runs Through It. And the Walla Walla Creek drains pretty much all of our farms. And it runs from our summer home on the lake all the way to where my parents live on the Wolf River. And we'll take young people up and we'll take them on a follow the water flight. 
And we'll start at the lake, which is the headwaters of the Walla Walla Creek, wind through our farm, and then end up at the river. And after a rain event, you'll see the silt fans and then trace them back to where they came from. Get up, you know, go back up river and say, all right, where did that, where did that soil, where did that silt come from? Oh, there it is. You know, it was a highly tilled field on a slope. And you can see the, from the air, you can see the gullies and the erosion. And then we'll fly farther upstream and get to, you know, cover crops and alfalfa. And the water is pristine and clear. There's, there's nothing. And it's a real eye-opener. I think what it did for me is it, uh, it allowed me to see how I affect my neighbors. Uh, how everybody downstream either suffers or benefits based on what I do. And I think every farmer should have the ability to get up and see what kind of an impact they have on their community. And uh, are they a good neighbor or are they a not so good neighbor? Yeah, I like that. That's really cool. I wish I flew better. Flying is not for me, but it would be really fun to see that perspective and that point of view. Maybe I'll use a drone to do it. That would get me the right access, right? Well, you know, drones just aren't quite the same. We, we've had several <laughs> people out on the farm and they've done video with drones. And I, you know, I, they're a great tool, but give me the choice, you know, stand on the ground and look at a screen or get up there. And I mean, it, it's, it's, it would be the, the comp, I would compare it to watching a movie or being in a movie, you know, mm. <laughs> it's that much different. It's, it's sure. just so different to be up there, to see it, to feel it, to smell it. Um, yeah, you could see that from a drone, but when you can actually get up there and be part of it and see it in the air from the airplane, it, it's, it's different. It's a different experience. Yeah. We could compare that to watching the cattle show live in Madison and watching it on Expo TV. Yeah. It, it works, but it's not the same. Yeah. Yeah. You can't smell the shavings. You, you know, you, you, <laughs> yeah, there, just, there's an aroma at Expo when you walk in and, and see and feel and hear it uh, that you can't, you know, yeah, it doesn't work remotely. It just doesn't. No, we like to give people the chance, right? And it's a great tool if you can't make it. But yeah, there's something like being here. Ron, um, we are almost out of time. So I'm just going to ask, do you have anything that you want to add? Any insight that you feel like we need to talk about uh, while we have you? I think we covered a lot of ground. I always get accused of trying to cover too much ground. Like with my daughters, I, you know, attitude trumps all. And I've got a great young man. He's, he's a fellow farmer that works for us. I learn a lot from him because he has a contagiously positive attitude and attitude trumps all. I, I don't care how bad the day is, uh, what's going wrong. This young man always sees the bright side. And I would encourage everybody, you know, there's plenty of gloom and doom out there to focus on, but uh, there's also a lot of good things happening. And I look at my daughters and where they're taking this farm and I get excited because they're certainly going directions that I'm not qualified or capable of taking it. Uh, will they all work? Yeah, probably not. But um, boy, are they are they trying some fun and innovative stuff? We just had an event here Saturday called Cheese the Day. And it was a rainy day and we thought, oh, gosh, you know, the turnout might not be that great. It was phenomenal. We estimated uh, 300 plus people came to the farm. I got to do a tour, you know, once in a while, they let me, they turned me loose and they put reins on me, you know, dad, you can't talk about this. You can only, <laughs> but um, 
<laughs> what was that, my dear? Keep it under an hour. Uh, keep it under an hour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's my passion and uh, you know, it's my girl's passion and I can certainly see it, uh, that they, they just live it and they love it. I like that scraped knees along the way with a positive attitude. Yep. That's perfect. Well, I, I couldn't have summed all of this up better, Ron. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. We appreciate learning from you today and, uh, good luck with the rest of the hay cuttings this summer. Oh, thank you, Katie. We want to give a final thank you to the sponsor of this episode, Legacy Seeds. For top-performing corn and alfalfa forage solutions, visit LegacySeeds.com and download their seed guide today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you. 